We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what we consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. Yet, there's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is McCormick Fona. I'm Corey Doucette, and welcome to our Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. They are some of the worst house guests imaginable. They live with you rent-free, they eat your food when you told them not to, their table manners can be atrocious, and personal boundaries are non-existent, and we wouldn't have it any other way. In fact, many of us like them more than other people. We seek them out at gatherings and functions and talk to them with more honesty and insight than we would our best friends. Does this sound extreme when I'm, of course, talking about your pets? Probably not. As mentioned in our opening, we are very conscious of what we eat as humans, so then it stands to reason we'd do the same for our pets. Today, we welcome two experts from our pet food division, marketing director Lisa Demi and junior flavorist Kristen Fox. Hi, guys. Hey, Corey. Hi, Corey. Great to have you guys here today. So we're going to kick this off like we always do. I'm going to have you guys introduce yourselves. Tell us about your journey that brought you to McCormick Fona, a little bit about what you do and who you are. So let's say, Kristen, go first. All right. So uh, it's, it's a pretty short journey. Uh, I graduated from North Carolina State with my master's, and I started working at McCormick Fona in our analytical department about eight, nine years ago. Six years ago, I transitioned to our flavorist and training program, and I am the flavorist for our pet care division now. Now, South Carolina, are you f- you're not from there, right? North Carolina. I'm sorry, North Carolina. No, it's okay. let's, let's redo that. I again. am not. <laughs> so, North Carolina, you're not from there. Did you, you went to school there? Where are you actually from? I am from Chicago. I was born and raised in a southwest suburb. So, so you came home. I came home, and I dragged my Texan husband with me in the worst winter we ever had. So. <laughs> We all had fun. Sounds very familiar to my own story, but in reverse. <laughs> and Lisa, how about you? Well, I have a very long history. I've been traveling through CPG, consumer product goods companies, uh, marketing finished goods for everything from hot dogs to coffee for about 20 years now. 10 years ago, I came to MC Fona or McCormick Fona as a marketer, and I came in the beverage division. I've rounded through every single segment that we sell. I worked with our flavorists like Kristen and our applications teams, and I've always had pet. So I remember the first time I was asked to give a pet food presentation, and it was all about the human trends, the humanization of pets, and it was all about savory. So I'm the marketer of the pet segment today, and Kristen and I work very closely together with another few folks on the, on the team. I got to say, when we decided that we were going to have a pet food or a pet conversation, I knew immediately that we, I individually would probably digress into tangents of, oh, well, my dog does this or my, my cat does that. So why don't I ask you guys before we get this all started, do you have any animals? How many names? I'll start. I have, well, technically four animals that live with me. I have two dogs and a horse and I have a cat. And I want to clarify that cat lives with me. That is my husband's cat. The dogs are mine. The horse is mine. The cat is my roommate. Casanova, Sprinkles, Billy, and Schnitzel. 
Well, I am a dog person only because I'm allergic to cats. I love cats, but cannot be around them at all. My husband had a cat when we, we first met. We waited to get married until his cat had, had passed on. So that's, that, was, that was the deal is that we were together. But, uh, so I, I love both, but I currently have a new, brand new puppy. Uh, she's a Labradoodle, and her name is Lola. Wow. And Lola is a showgirl. <laughs> every time I, what the re- listeners don't know is that every time i pass lisa and i mention her dog i instantly go into the barry manilow song whether in my head or out loud so absolutely she is a beautiful puppy i have two dogs and two cats they are all in some way shape or form named after literary characters the cats are lenny and hamilton and the dogs are oliver and wilbur Wilbur was actually Wilbur because our daughter is Charlotte, and there's a Charlotte's Web, obviously, link there. Um, That's all my wife's doing. I have no creativity when naming things. So anyways, all of that aside, thank you for introducing your pets as well as yourself. So let's talk about why are we here today? What are we going to be talking about, Lisa? What, What are we concentrating on? Well, one of the things we want to share with our listeners is that every year we conduct a pet parent survey. And that might sound a little crazy, but we take cat and dog owners, at least 500 plus, and we open it up to them and ask them about their feeding habits. We certainly want to lead it to flavor because we are a flavor company, but we're trying to understand what helps them make their decisions when choosing their kibble or choosing their treats or choosing any other number of products that are in the marketplace for their pet. Now, these foods that they're trying or these trends that you're looking for, what what are we producing? What are we looking for in this survey? What are we trying to find out? We're trying to understand what format they're purchasing. Are they buying dry kibble? Are they buying wet wet food? Are they buying uh, treats that have functionality? Are they adding new innovation? One of the things that's come come up in recent years is how many pet parents are supplementing their water for various reasons for their pets. So there's a variety of questions, but it all leads down to flavor. And what are they looking for from a flavor perspective? What form and format? What regulations are they are they looking for? How aligned is it to their own diets and their own preferences? And what I think is good for me, I automatically think is good for my pet. That's not always the case. So we have to kind of put the lens on it of the scientific lens and the regulatory lens as well in order to guide our flavor creation and our offerings. Now, before you got into this kind of field, were you thinking in these terms? Were you thinking like, what's good for me should be good for my dog? And is that true? Are you finding that to be fair? Uh, I, I read an awful lot from a science standpoint, and I don't think that my dietary habits are necessarily translatable to my dog. Um, however, I do think that if I like to have birthday cake or I like to have ice cream, <laughs> that my dog would like to have a celebration on her birthday for, of ice cream or birthday cake. So yeah, and I do think that red velvet might be something that's, as long as there's no chocolate in it, might be something that's good for my dog yeah. or my dog would enjoy yeah, I don't know about you guys, but Frosty Paws gets my, you know, gets a nice bump from me when any of my animals have a birthday. But then again, they always get to lick the knife after I've had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich too. So that could feel like a birthday for them too. And also I do the primary cooking in the house. So anytime I'm have, you know, have a little extra, a little something, oh, it fell on the floor. Plus I have two children. So every day is that dog's birthday when it comes to my kids because they're constantly dropping things. So Corey, I just wanted to drop one little stat that came out in this year's research. 81% of pet parents say they share their food with their dog or their cat. I thought that was amazing. I try to only feed my dog the prescribed dog food and some treats. But as you know, I've well, I've got a counter surfer. I've got a puppy. So the counter surfer is up there she ate half a turkey hot dog the other the other day and wolfed it down that I thought I'd never seen a turkey hot dog disappear so fast in my life. Yep. Yep. I have a counter surfer. I also have two cats. So, you know, 
so I have people come over to my house. And so, for example, my father, and he goes, oh, the cat's licking this, that, and the other thing. And this will kind of tell you what kind of person I am. I look at my father and instantly say, if I didn't eat whatever my cat has licked, I would go starving. I, you know, <laughs> that's probably gross, but that's, that's the story in my house. So let's talk about this from kind of a, a flavor creation aspect. So people are choosing things, you know, flavors for their animals. What are, what are the top choices and how are we making those up? Um, so a lot of it for creation, it starts with, okay, what do I think I can add into this that, you know, the dog or cat would like? But the, a large portion of it, especially when you're talking about profiles that are humanized, is coming from Lisa and I brainstorming together, you know. If I see a dog food that has filet mignon on it, what do consumers, and when I say consumers here, I don't mean the pets, but the the pet parents, what do they think that would smell with? So it's kind of a fine balance between, okay, the pet likes this. We know that sometimes pet foods don't always smell that great. My dad gave me a bunch of treats for his dog and he goes, she loves these, but they stink. And I feel like that's a pretty common sentiment. So kind of balancing out with Lisa, what can I do to make the human experience also pleasant? And the consumers, when we survey them, and you can certainly tell from retail patterns on, of what's on the shelf and what is flying off the shelves. So if you take a dog, it's beef and chicken, one and two. And when Kristen talks about prime rib, just as we want to eat something that's premium or cues premium, we've had what we call namers, prime rib, pot roast, things that are recognizable in, in a human form or a, a premium cut of meat. And we also need to have some of those culinary cues coming across. Rotisserie chicken. What does rotisserie add to a chicken? And that comes into aroma, which is also leading to how Kristen is going to create those flavors. So how do you guys test for success? How do you tell if whatever flavor you're making is going to attract cats or dogs the most? So this is actually, uh, it's kind of a bizarre concept until you start like thinking about it. So everyone is pretty much used to sensory in the human world. There is sensory in the companion animal arena. Before you continue, please <laughs> tell me that you line up like five or six dogs and cats in a room and like put six bowls at the end and just 20. Really? Yeah, it's not it's not far off. Actually, I was really campaigning for a while to set up our own McCormick Fona kennels, but Unfortunately, when you send out for these tests, they're actually very highly trained dogs. The same as we train like our sensory panelists, our uh, descriptive analysis, these dogs are trained to taste. And so it really is, you're setting down a bowl of food and seeing how much they eat. Or if you're doing like a comparison, you get two bowls of food, you see which bowl they go up to first, and you see how much they intake. And then just like regular sensory, there's statistics that go into it. And you find that, you know, bowl A is significantly better than bowl B. I'm quitting my job right now <laughs> just so I can do that. I, I, I want to be part of the snuggle laboratory that after, you know, whenever they're done, I get to be the one that be, tells them that they're a good boy or girl and does the belly scratches. I, I'm volunteering right? for that. My master's is half in sensory. And so every time I'm like, well, if this flavorous thing doesn't work out, I know what field is sensory I want to go into. So now that we have, we've gathered all this information, what do we do with it? What's, what are we extracting and how do we make that important or how do we use it to our, our favor? So depending upon the customer that we're working with, they have a brand and a brand persona. Some of them have certain regulatory claims, like we work with companies that 
focus on organic, are looking for clean labels, simple ingredients. Um, you know, the same thing that you see in the human side of food and beverage, you see translating into pet. So depending upon what their brand persona is, what their innovation objectives are, we're sharing some of the survey information we have. We're sharing our technical expertise. We're sharing how we might be able to enhance the aroma and nail a gold standard. What does pot roast smell like? We know what it smells like from a, from a human perspective. What can Kristen do from a flavor creation standpoint to enhance that aroma and really get the essence of pot roast, which has veggies and roasted techniques in it? So we're sharing the information of our surveys. We're sharing our technical expertise. We're sharing what else we see from an innovation standpoint in the industry. We attend various different pet food shows during the year. We just came back in May from Pet Food Forum. Uh, Super Zoo is another one. We're out there kind of nose to the ground. And then we come back and share what, what we've seen domestically as well as globally. And those sensory results that we get when you when I was talking about, you know, which bowl do they go to first? A lot of that is aroma. They call it first choice. So if you're getting an excellent first choice score, your aroma is good. A lot of times our customers, their intake will be fine, but they want that first choice. And so that's really where we can help them is, you know, enhancing that aroma, giving it that pot roasty smell. So that that is a large portion of where flavor kind of resides is let's make this aroma not only pleasant for the human to smell, but let's make sure we're getting that first choice score too. And what about the nutrition side of things? We're talking a lot about obviously flavor because that's what we do. Do we concern heavily, do we concern ourselves heavily with nutrition? Like we're making the flavor for this food. Are we worried that the food is nutritious? Are we, you know, making sure that the dog is getting everything it needs or the cat is getting everything it needs? I think that's really our customer's obligation. They're, mm -hmm. they're formulating to um, some very specific dietary guidelines. A lot of times, and there's different guidelines depending upon whether it's the number one concern of pet parents is life stage. So a puppy food versus a adult versus a senior are, are different. We also see an awful lot of what I call functionality being built into especially treats. So treats for your dog or cat that address a shiny coat, that address joint health. And there's some very specific herbs and spices and ingredients, supplements that are being put into these treats that we might have to mask or use a taste modulation in order to kind of suppress some of those natural earthy aromas and then elevate the flavor. So there's an element that comes into it from that standpoint as well. Also, usually what I'm developing, I'm trying to remain negligent in terms of their nutrition content. So I'm not going to change anything from your food, your guaranteed analysis, any of that. The flavors, the wonderful thing about them is they're used at such small concentrations that you're not really adding any. So if I have, you know, a little bit of salt in my formula, um, generally I'll formulate where I'm not putting salt just because there are certain things I look out for. You know, you, nobody wants extra sodium for themselves or for their pet, but really at the amount that you use it, we're not changing a nutritional panel. With all this information that we're getting in and we've talked about kind of top flavors being beef and chicken, we're also seeing some new trends of, of vegan food for, for animals. That's new to me. What, what kind of trends are we seeing in that? So I just wanted to say beef and chicken are number one and two for dogs. I do, don't want to forget our cats, which would be seafood and chicken, tuna specifically. So just, just to kind of put it in perspective, number one and two. But uh, to answer your question that you just asked about vegans, uh, we see a lot of plant-based movement in the marketplace across categories, whether you're talking about performance nutrition products, plant-based, pea-based, protein powder, or you're talking about meat alternatives, 
And that's on the human side of it. So we also see that translating to pets. And again, this kind of goes to your question of us from a nutritional standpoint, we're not guiding the formulation of the nutrition aspect of that. We are just elevating it from a trend standpoint and a flavor perspective. So we do have customers that are developing products that would fit a vegan or a vegetarian lifestyle from a human perspective, and they're translating that into pet. But we also are trying to understand where, where the consumers are coming from with that momentum. And vegetarians, vegans are a very small part of the population, whether you're talking about pet parents or the consumers in general. So we find that a lot of the movement and the growth is coming because there are a lot of consumers that are flexitarians. They think plant-based products are better for their health eating a little less red meat is is good for their own health. Um, They're worried about the planet, so the sustainability of the planet. So we just see this is a perfect example of, it's not the science part of formulation and nutrition, it's the movement of consumers and the humanization of pets and how they're translating that. So we see a number of motivations. We are seeing some products on the marketplace and we can formulate nicely. Vegan or vegetarian-based products tend to have some earthy notes, tend to have some, you know, they're, they're, plant, they're plant-based. So Kristen can overcome that with her flavor formulation. Kristen, would I add something? No, as far as formulating flavors for pet when you're talking about that vegan, it, it really is very similar to what we're doing in the human space, except while you might be used to people talking about pea protein for a vanilla shake, obviously it's going to be a little bit different when you're now shifting into a more savory, meaty base. But the concepts are really the same. You're trying to hide those beanie, earthy notes. You're trying to hide the bitter. Cats and dogs, just like us, are adverse to bitter. While cats can't taste sweet, dogs can. So we they have that aspect going for them too. So it's really just balancing what do cats like? What do dogs like? What is this food now built on? The same thing as looking at any other matrix. There is a lot of, especially, this started a little bit with all of the grain-free. When people started moving from, you know, wheat, gluten, and things like that, things that we knew were drawing dogs in and that they liked, they were now replacing with things like pea protein, uh, legumes. um, And I don't know if you've ever tasted any of those, but they don't inherently taste as good as wheat gluten. So we've been masking things like that for a while. It it kind of shifted from, you know, you had your regular dog food, which you think of byproducts and wheat gluten and all the things that they love, but they don't have a great label for humans. And people think, well, if I don't like that, my dog can have something better. And so you switch to kind of like the grain-free where you have more, you know, full chicken breasts. You're not having chicken byproducts. You got rid of all the wheat gluten. You're replacing with some of those things that maybe don't taste as good. Now the next step up is really that veganism. Now I know from other podcasts that we've had conversations about pea proteins being used in human food, and you kind of touched on this as pea proteins not being the most enjoyable or flavorful things. Are you using the same techniques to either trade out that flavor or mask that flavor for the dog foods as you would a human food? So it's more of not so much people versus dog food, but profile. So sweet versus savory. Um, but yeah, I would use the same technique for my, my pet customers as I would use if I was working on a plant-based burger or something like that. And why would, why would you guys say that people are really doing this humanization of pets? Like, what is the reason behind people wanting, you know, human-grade food for their, for their animals? Well, we, we treat our pets like they're firstborn, right? <laughs> Very often before you, before you have children, you have a pet. So that becomes your baby. And 
what you enjoy from a food perspective or a beverage perspective, you think is going to translate. You want them to have variety. You want them to have premium. You want them to have, you know, not lose lose interest. You want them to have the experience. Experiential products are are out there in the, in the marketplace. So it's just, just a translation of wanting to take the best care of your pet and thinking that the best care of a human or a baby or a child is the same thing when you're talking about a cat or a dog or any other service animal. I think some of it might be, and Lisa, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think some of it might be generational. I know my older parents and aunts and uncles, they didn't really treat their dogs the same way that I do. When I first got my dog, that dog went everywhere with me. Like I got a haircut and he was hidden inside my bag so nobody could see him. He literally went everywhere, vacations, everything. And I mean, that wasn't really something we did with our dogs as when I was a kid. And I know my friends are that way too. So I, I could be wrong there, but I do think that the younger generations are kind of... Kristen is not wrong because we actually, in the pet parent survey, the last three years, we've taken a generational perspective so that we could look at boomers versus millennials the holy grail are still millennials, even though we're looking to Gen Z because they're coming of age and they're coming into their buying power and they have pets that they're taking care of on their own now. It's a smaller sample. So it's usually the millennials versus the boomers. The generation that sits in, sits in between millennials and boomers tends to swing one way or the other. So they're almost a hybrid. It's It's the generation that I like to look at the most. But the older you get, the less you are likely to treat that pet as a pampered child. But we don't see the spending habits of spending premium, we see from an economical standpoint, the millennials want to go premium, want to feed their pet as if it's a child, but at the same time, they want value. They want value. Yeah. Well, there's a running joke in my family. <laughs> my father-in-law has two dogs and that if any of us pass away, we want to come back as my father-in-law's dog because of the way he treats them, feeds them. You know, it's, it's like heaven on earth. I, I can't tell you how much it looks like a, a wonderful life. So up to this point, we've talked a lot about food, dry food, wet food. We haven't talked about water and the trends we're seeing there. I mean, I read some of this, this information about flavoring water, changing water for your pets, you know, adding nutrients to water for your pets. And it, it kind of blows my mind because I feel like I feel like food gets a lot of the attention and water is kind of the, the, the second in command here. So what are we seeing on that front? What's, what's new with water for our pets? So water enhancers or LBEs, liquid beverage enhancers, Thank you. are concentrated, yeah. uh, the concentrated form of that, have become very popular in the pet world. And our survey this year, uh, 25% or one in four dog owners said that they add something regularly to their water, which blew my mind. That was up, I think, nine percentage points over last year. The same question was asked last year. Smaller number with cat uh, owners, only 13% said they added. But then we went in and asked them, what are they adding to their water? So they might be adding chicken or beef as a almost as a broth to enhance, entice them to drink to more water to hydrate themselves. We also find that from a flavor perspective, sometimes they're adding minerals and supplements to their water to as opposed to giving a, a pill in the dry kibble that is chondroitin or glucosamine. They're actually putting some some things into their into their water. They're putting things into their water to calm their cats or calm their dogs. They're putting things into their water to freshen their breath. And in each one of those need states or instances, the flavor selection that they're going to pair might be different. So if I'm trying to freshen my cat or dog's breath, I might do a mint parsley. Parsley giving you kind of the human reason to believe that parsley is a natural cleansing agent 
we can do a parsley flavor. We can top it with mint. We all brush our teeth and you know select our toothpaste, but a lot of a lot of those toothpastes are mint or those gums are mint that we chew. Uh, so a parsley mint flavor would be something that would be appealing in a water enhancer for a pet parent. And that's a wonderful idea. I mean, our dog is a Frenchie, so therefore he's brachycephalic, flat-faced. And every time he goes outside, you know, on hot days or cold days, he overheats. And we're always trying to get him over to the water bowl to drink. And oftentimes he doesn't want to, whether he's not enticed or he doesn't feel like it. I mean, this sounds like a great way to, you know, not only get him nutrients, but get him hydrated so he can cool his body temperature or get excited. At least that's how I would think to use it. So Corey, are you going to be one in four? I could be. I I mean, right now we also have a cat that uh, has to take anxiety medication, uh, which I have to hide, which I am terrible at evidently. You know, pill pockets and all this other stuff is, is just not working. But if I could put it in his water, that would be perfect. That is one thing I was surprised to find when Lisa told me the results was that less cat owners were putting something to get their cat to drink more, less than dogs. In my mind, I feel like cat owners have been dealing with that problem a lot longer than dog owners have been. I don't know if they've just already figured it out with like their wet food and stuff, but I was very surprised to find out that they didn't hop on the the LBE train there. I mean, I don't know if they just don't know it. In my case, didn't know it existed. That is true. You know, which is news to me. It's almost world shattering right now because my cat is just that finicky, which it would be so much easier to put it in water than put it in a pill form. If you've ever tried to give a pill to a cat, I mean, you might as well, exactly. Lisa just made a a clawing uh, (laughs) motion and she's exactly right. You know, it's like trying to, you know, pick up water with a a slotted spoon. It's hard. It's really hard, (laughs) but that's, that's incredible to me. This seems like sort of a new innovation. Did this come out of a certain era or time frame or how new is this? Is this COVID related? I wouldn't say the water enhancers necessarily are COVID related, although the timing is kind of what we started to see in the marketplace is, is coincidental. Some of the things that we have seen from COVID is with the shelter in place, you've heard the statistics, a lot of people took in an additional cat or dog or a first time cat or dog as they've had to go back to work. The sad circumstances have been many of them ended up in the shelter. So there's been a big push for adoption and shelter. But taking them into their home and us being kind of locked down or spending more time at home, more isolated, just like a lot of parents started doing things with their kids or doing things with each other, like ordering some of these meal services and exploring ethnic flavor flavor trends. Well, there's pet services as well. And, you know, fresh Fresh food, variety of food coming and being delivered to your doorstep for your dog or your cat is is a thing. So that is one of the things that we've seen escalate uh, during during COVID. So just as one example of a trend, we've seen others. I wouldn't say the water enhancer necessarily was a COVID-related issue. I do know my dogs got outside a lot more during COVID, so maybe that yeah. that hooks in. We, we've also seen an increase in what I call forms and formats for snacking doggy cupcakes. I mean, just different formats that are very humanized, um, bone broths or socks and broths, not even just as water enhancers, but being added. You've seen things like cat wine or doggy beer. I mean, there's just, they're trying to take it every, every direction they can to in a, in a form and format standard. We've really hit a lot of 
good information today. We've really touched on a lot of key things. But at this point in time in the podcast, we always ask our guests to give us maybe two or three or less takeaways, things that we really want our listeners to kind of concentrate on or or take from this individual podcast. So Lisa, if you want to kick us off and list out your few. Sure. From a consumer panelist standpoint or our pet parents survey, we've understand that they believe a diet or nutritional approach that's good for them is also good for their pet. And just know that we at McCormick Fona can design flavors that are appealing to both the pet parent and the pet, but also meet the nutritional guidelines and the regulatory guidelines, which is known as AFCO in the pet world. There's um, a set of guidelines that we are very well versed in at Fona, and we can translate that into our pet in- innovation products for you. I think the second thing I'd like to say is that when we design flavors for pets, we make sure they appeal to both the pet and the pet parent. If they appeal to one and not the other, we're not going to be successful. And we know that aroma is an important component to making it appealing to both. And then I guess last but not least, we love to share our research, our primary research with our customers when we're working on projects. And every year we conduct a nationwide pet parent survey that's been for the last five years. We want to see where pet parents are selecting flavors. And we've seen a growing interest in culinary inspired flavors, uniquely human formats. And that aligns beautifully with what we at McCormick and Fauna do. So Kristen, whenever you're ready, go ahead and give us your two to three takeaways. The one thing that I think of is when you're selecting flavors for your products, you know, you might think chicken, beef, don't be afraid to go beyond that. You might be able to add like an underlying flavor that'll help kind of lift your aroma or even do some of that taste modification we talked about. Don't be afraid to go outside of your chicken, beef, fish flavor box. We said that a lot on the podcast for humans too. So absolutely. If if there's any kind of taste modification I could do to make it so that Lenny ate his medications, I would do it in a heartbeat. All right, you guys, this is the part of the podcast where we throw out three questions in this case, just kind of off the cuff answers, more personal, less technical, be as honest as you want. I promise I will go easy on you. But when it comes to pets, I mean, there's just so many things we do without thinking about. And one of them is, and I'm sure that you guys have done this. When I talk to my pets, I have a voice that I use for each one, whether it's similar or, or different for each one, I, I can't tell. But if I'm going to tell my dog that he's a good boy, I'm literally going to go into that, oh, you're such a good boy. Like my voice changes. What is that voice for you, Kristen? Believe it or not, it's higher than, than it is already. So. And will you give us a sample? Of course I will. Oh, you're a good girl. Lisa, how about you? Oh, mommy's good girl, Lola. Aren't you such a good puppy, my beautiful baby? Oh, man. Everybody does it. Everybody does it. Same thing with small children, too. You know, that that coochie-coo voice, you know, except for me. I don't do that to my kids. I talk to them like this. Hey, when are you getting a jet? No, kidding. (laughs) My kid gets less high-pitched. My dogs definitely get more more of that than he does, so. Because, I mean, the high pitch excites, like, gets them really, like, energized. Like, you know, well, obviously, Wilbur doesn't have a tail, but all he does, he has a little nubbin. And like that thing just goes crazy whenever you're like two octaves up. So yeah, absolutely. I think that's... Neither of my dogs have tails, actually. They both have the little nubs, Mm -hmm. but I really like to see them like wag it. I think it's that as a human, it's that, you know, indication that, yes, I'm enjoying what you're saying. I don't understand it, but I love it kind of thing. All right. Uh, Lisa, did you have something to add? I was just going to say Lola's doggy daycare, the woman that runs the doggy daycare has the highest pitch. She sounds like a small child. (laughs) <laughs> and when she sends a video, and I sent it out to my parents and some some family members, they said, how old is she, 12? <laughs> and she's probably about 55 years old. But the dog loves it, runs runs to her for that voice. So I think that 
they re- they respond to the higher pitch. Yeah. My mini Aussie, when I first got him, going back to I brought that dog everywhere with me. Um, I needed an activity to do with him, so we did agility. And the woman, when she first met me, looked at me and she goes, your voice will be perfect for this. <laughs> I was like, I'm not really sure what that means. I'm going to take it as a compliment. I would think that might help you train your dog better for like potty training and, you know, obedience and whatnot. Like anything you can do to help with that kind of stuff, do it. Okay. So this one is a little more revealing on this one. Everybody, I don't care who you are, when you see dog food, whether it's the kibble, whether it's the the wet food or whatever it is, or even cat food, everybody thinks to themselves, what does that taste like? You know, it, it looks good enough to eat. Should I try it? And I will say right now that as a kid, Yes, I definitely tried my dog's food. Have you done that? So in grad school, actually, I had, we had a, we did contract work. And so I tasted dog food. However, I will tell you this, and I've told every manager that I've ever had since I started pet, I draw the line at wet food. I will not eat the wet food. I feel like that's cheating a little bit. (laughs) Probably, but. (laughs) But I'll take it. I'll take it. How about you, Lisa? So this is a, an emphatic no And it's only because that in my childhood, my grandfather, when we would come over with our dog and they'd take care of us, babysit us, um, would open the can of Alpo and always take a spoonful and go, yum, 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 and gross us out. (laughs) So, And I shouldn't call out Alpo. I don't mean it as a brand, but it was a wet food to Kristen's Kristen's point. And it was just, just grossed us out. Fair enough. Fair enough. So last question I'm going to ask, everybody names their dog usually something other than dog or cat or whatever. Everybody names their cat. But nobody ever calls their animal by that specific name all the time. What are your pet names for your pets? So I'll start with Schnitzel. She is an English bulldog. I feel like this is important to mention. Uh, We call her Schnitzy Pie or Schnitzy Bean. And my two-year-old only refers to her as Schnitzy Bean. Um, My other dog, he's a mini Aussie. And when I first got him... Uh, my mom brought him to school, and I go, Mom, he looks wormy because he was he was fat. She goes, no, he's just healthy. No, he was wormy, just FYI. Uh, <laughs> but I call him Butters for a butterball. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I told you Lola is a Labradoodle, so I call her Lola Doodle. She's a Lola Doodle. She's not a Labradoodle. She's a Lola Doodle. And my pet name for his Putsy Pie, <laughs> Little Putsy Pie. <laughs> And I like to answer this one too. I usually don't answer the questions, but since we're talking about our animals, I have to throw in my two cents because everybody needs to know. Wilbur, Charlotte couldn't say his name when she was younger, so she would call him Bilber. And he also answers to all of the nicknames that Will Smith had in the early 2000s, including Big Willie Style, Willennium, uh, and <laughs> w- uh, Willie Will. And Ollie is usually, well, he's Oliver, but usually he's Ollie or Ali Bubba or just Bub. And Hamilton is Hammy, Ham and Eggs, Ham, Hamil Pie, I think is one of our shootout. And Lenny is just Lenny because he's Lenny. That's enough said. But anyways, thank you so much to our guests for joining us today. That's it for our Flavor University podcast. I'm Corey Dusa, and I'd like to thank our special guests, Lisa Demi and Kristen Fox. Thanks for listening. And until next time, the flavor of McCormick Fona is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it. <laughs>